0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Our study is the Spirit speaks to seven churches and this is taken from the recurring line that we find in each of the letters to the seven churches of asia each of the letters concludes with this commandment he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches the new testament meaning of to hear means to heed it's not just to hear what's being said not only to listen but to be active to do What the Holy Spirit says. And this study is very important for us. And these seven letters are not to be regarded as commands for ancient churches. But these are messages for the church today. The Spirit still speaks to us through these letters. God's Word is permanent. It's never changed. It will not change. God spoke in the past. He speaks to us in the present. He will continue to speak in His Holy Word into the future as we uncover the prophecies that the Bible has said will come to pass. And so we've got to listen and heed every word that comes from God. Well, each of these letters has valuable information, but perhaps today's message and the one that comes in two weeks after Brother Castro is here, perhaps these two messages are the most important of all because the problems at the church, of the church at Pergamos are the problems that we find in churches today. These are current problems. It's it's as if God intended to speak about the problems of this year, of, of this month, of this week, as churches meet to open the Word of God, to study from it. The Pergamene church problem was one of compromise, and the church has not seen a worse time of compromise from the first century into this present day. Is it possible to compromise the gospel of Christ and still be a church that belongs to the Lord? Is it possible to compromise doctrinally and morally and still be Christian? Is it possible to compromise the theology of our faith and still be called a Christian church? Well, these are questions that must be answered. These are questions that need to be seen in the Pergamine church and in churches today. There is a type of theological and moral compromise taking place. And we need to know where do we stand on these issues. And has Berean Baptist Church gone off the rails into some sort of compromise? Well, this is the letter to the church at Pergamos. If you look in the Word of God at Revelation 2, verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges... I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Before I even start my message today, I've, got, I've just got to warn you. Maybe this is stuff or things that should be said at a later time, not on a Sunday morning. But I think that the Word of God is appropriate to be preached anywhere at any time. And though this may be difficult for some, and we find it necessary to name names and tell you who to stay away from, tell you who the false prophets are, Tell you which churches are not standing for the truth. We do need to tell you that, even though it's unpopular for us to do so. But it is the Word of God, and there are warnings here, and we wouldn't have been given warnings if we weren't to heed them, as I said just a moment ago. Pergamos is one of seven cities in Asia Minor where there was a church that was founded. Perhaps it was founded out of one of those churches that the Apostle Paul started because he traveled throughout extensively throughout this area, although the Word of God never says that Paul visited Pergamos. But it could be that the church was started out of one of those churches in that area that he began. Or maybe this is a church that started out of the Jewish dispersion back at the very beginning of persecution when the Jerusalem church was persecuted right after the death of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's where this church came from. But regardless of how it got started, These seven churches that are written of here are representative of all churches since the first century. And each of these letters speaks a commendation or condemnation, sometimes both. It's a message that needs to be obeyed because it is the Holy Spirit who gave it. And this is the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ whose churches these are. These belong to Him. And this is why this message is given. He demands a church that is pure and chaste and holy to be that bride that I talked about just a moment ago, to be obedient to the message of the Word of God, to repent or action will be taken. Now in Pergamos, moral and theological compromises were the issues. Now the first letter that went to the church at Ephesus was opposite of this. Ephesus was not a church in moral or theological compromise. In fact, the Lord commended them for standing strong in the faith and their theology, not being immoral, not going after the culture. They stood strong, but this pergaming church was not that. They surrendered to the pressure of persecution, and this is a church that's on a downward spiral, heading away from the faith of Christ. The temptation in persecution is to do anything that you can to stop it. The culture bears down. The culture is against us. And Christians know that if we just return to the culture, then everything will be fine. Old lifestyles will help us out. Our persecutions will end. When the entire society rejects the stand that you take for Jesus Christ, you know very well that the pressure is intense. We talked about this with, with Smyrna, where the word tribulation is used. And that word tribulation means to be oppressed, to be pushed down, to have a massive weight that is put on you. And the further that our country gets away from God, this happens to us as Christians today, that the weight of the culture bears down on us, and we have a temptation to depart from the Word of God, to, to stand in another place, not to stand on God's Word, And when we do, we are called theologically and morally reprehensible. When we preach that the lifestyles that people are living today, the the perversion that people live in today, when we say that it's not morally alright, then we are called the hate mongers. And when we do, as I said just a moment ago, say that Jesus Christ is the one and only, He is the only way that you're going to get to heaven, then they say that we are the theological pariahs. Oh, there are many ways to get to heaven. And we have just got to respect the many different ideas that people have and say, that way is okay too. You go your way, I'll go my way. True Christians can't do that because there is only one way to God the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. Now, this issue is especially acute in Pergamus. This is a city that was a cultural region, a center of the region. They're a prominent city, they were the ancient capital of another empire, but now they are under a Roman consul, and it happens that the Roman governor who is in this city is one of the highest in the Roman Empire. There are several of these that are sprinkled around throughout the Roman Empire, and here the Roman proconsul has what is called the right of the sword. That means that he could act without due process, without a court of law, without permitting any defense, he can order the seizure of Christian property and the murder of Christian citizens. Now, as you know, Paul used his Roman citizenship at times to protect himself from Gentiles that would persecute him and throw him into prison. They were not supposed to bind, bind him. They couldn't put him in chains and put him in jail unless he had a through process, unless it had been taken to a court of law. We see that's true in, in Philippi. When Paul was put into jail there, he wasn't supposed to have been there. And later, when they would have tried to appease him and let him go after the earthquake came and God shook that place, Paul said, well, if you want to let me go, you have the leaders come right down here and do it themselves. Because they beaten me and put me, in, put me in prison being a Roman citizen. And they were scared to death when they found that out. But here's a different situation in Pergamos, because here the law can be suspended. Here, even your Roman citizenship is not going to protect you if the Roman proconsul decides that you are a threat to that society. And this is what happened in Pergamos. Christians are considered to be a threat, and so without any warning, they could have their property seized and they'd be thrown into jail, or worse, they would be murdered. And it is with this Roman right of the sword in mind that Jesus refers to himself in verse number 12 as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus contrasts his word, his sword, to the Roman proconsul's right of the sword. So we talked about this in the last message. The word of Christ, or the word of God, it's the word of God that... It's not a physical sword. It is a, a word. The word that comes from its mouth is more powerful than any weapon of Rome. Roman armies use swords to subdue their enemies. But the sword of the Word of God acts in a different way because it changes the disposition of the heart. And rather than to fight with the sword, the sword of the Spirit causes to lay down physical swords. And to dedicate ourselves to God and to become lovers of our brothers, not haters and not people that want to kill one another. So inwardly, it changes us. The change from natural opposition to God to His supernatural favor is a right of Christ's sword through His Word. Now, If a person is not changed by that Word, if he continues to resist God, then the Word of God also says that it will subdue him. It will subdue the opposition. God speaks his word to bless and protect his people, and all he needs to do is speak and vanquish all opposition against him. And for persecuted Christians in Pergamos, Jesus said, I have the right of the sword. And very simply, he's telling them, there's no need to compromise. You've got to look at who's in control. There's no need to compromise. I have all power. I'm more powerful than Rome. I'm more powerful than any of the Roman leaders, the rulers, the emperor. I'm even more powerful than the God of this world, who is Satan. Christians don't need to fear anyone who can harm us when God is on our side. But unfortunately, lack of faith, fear of reprisals, caused the Pergamin Christians to, co- to compromise. They feared a government and a populace that said, Caesar is God, not Christ. Well next we see the concern the the issue that prompted this letter number 2 is the worldliness of the church pergamos opposed christianity because it was because of its status as a cultural capital the culture is very deep into idolatry unlike the smyrna church where jewish opposition was the main problem where it was intense pergamos is a little bit different because here the opposition is mainly from the gentiles mainly from those pagan Gentiles, Greeks and Romans and barbarians. I find, that, find this kind of interesting. I wanted to explain the term barbarians. You see that sometimes in the Scripture where Paul used that word barbarians. And I wanted to explain that. Uh, it's kind of interesting. These cities were where the seven churches were located, along with Corinth and Athens, uh, these were all cities that were a part of Alexander the Great's empire. At one time, all of this area was controlled by Alexander the Great. This is really the heart of his empire. The Greeks considered that all non-Greeks were barbarians. And so they called Romans barbarians. Whenever you see Paul mentioning barbarians to people in Corinth or in Galatia, the reference is mainly to Romans. And in Pergamus, the opposition is Greeks and Romans and Romans. Whatever else that you wanted to call a barbarian, just about everybody that you can imagine stood against Christians in that city. In this city, there was a temple that was built to worship Zeus. Stood high upon an outcropping of rock about 800 feet above the city. It looked like a throne. To the Pergamines, it was the throne of the gods. And this may be the reference in verse number 13 to Satan's seat. As I mentioned before, seat is thronos in the Greek, which means a throne. And so this literally looked like a huge throne that stood out over the city. Satan is called the god of this world. He's been cast down to this world, so he's been thrown out of heaven. So he has no throne anywhere in the heavens. Even though he is a spiritual being, Satan has no throne in any place where God dwells, not in the heavens. So Satan has been cast down to this earth, and somewhere on this earth he has his throne. And apparently, here in ancient Pergamus was the place of Satan's throne. And that gives you an idea of the concentration of evil that was against these Christians. Where is Satan the strongest than in the place where he headquarters to dispatch his demons over the world? Today, there are areas of the world that are his strongholds. Rome is one of those places. Mecca is one of those places. I think Beijing is one. Wherever false religions like Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and animism and atheism, wherever these things thrive, they thrive because Satan headquarters in those places. He stirs up all of that opposition to God. And sadly, when American Christians are attacked because of our morality and our theology, because it's different from what the rest of the world believes... When we are opposed to the government's agenda, then our government becomes a place of Satan's throne. It stands against us, against our morality and our theology, and today in America, we see our Supreme Court, our government offices working against Christian standards. Now, we need to nail down the two issues of compromise that caused Christ to write the letter to this church. Last week I said I've only got time to discuss one, and still today I've only got time to discuss one. We're going to go back and look again at this first cause, and then we'll take up the the other one in a couple of weeks. But this first cause that we have in the text is the problem of idolatry. There's a problem of idolatry. Now I remind you of the first two commandments in God's holy law. These are the ones that head the list, and they are about idolatry. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And he said, you shall not make an image of anything to serve, to bow, to bow down to, to worship as God. Now, if you have a problem with idolatry, then you violate the top two commandments in God's law. True Christians have nothing to do with idolatry. True Christianity must not compromise on this issue of idolatry. But in Pergamus, idolatry is synonymous with the culture. This is their culture. The city lived and breathed idolatry. This is their common life, and nobody could miss it. People walk outside of their homes, and they look up in the sky, and the first thing that draws their attention is that huge outcropping of rock that I spoke of with a four-story temple of Zeus that's standing on top. And all of the idols that are around and the smoke of sacrifices that go up, their lives are consumed by idolatry. Now the truth is, as I said last time, uh, by this point in the end of the first century, the worship of Zeus and all the other mythological gods was beginning to wane, and that worship had been transferred over to the worship of the Roman emperors. So, in effect, these temples and the outcropping of rock and all the things that they see and see... Uh, these things that they see in their city are reminders that Caesar is Lord. The test of the loyalty of the empire is not to believe that Zeus is God. Well, the test of loyalty is do you believe that Caesar is Lord. To deny that is to be branded a traitor. To deny that is to be thrown in prison or worse, to be killed. So Christians in Pergamos were subject to that every day of their lives, living in the midst of idolatry. So there was a group of people in the church. There was a faction in the church that was willing to compromise. Who is Lord? Well, they believe that's negotiable. We can negotiate this. Why not give Caesar what he wants? This is the attitude of the Nicolaitans, verse number 15. They wanted a way to serve Christ and Caesar at the same time. Why not bow to Caesar, just do this little thing, just this one little thing, and then we can go about our business. It was a theological compromise. They were willing to give up critical theology to end hostility hostility and save their skins. And today, this is one of the biggest issues that faces the Christian church. Can we give in a little bit here and a little bit there to remain popular with the culture? Can we just give in a little bit to them? Can we can we diversify our doctrine enough that we can include those groups that do not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation? Can we do that? Can we still be Christian if we do that? Do this. The nicolaitans maintain, well yes, we can. Now when you hear that churches need to be more ecumenical, this is essentially the bottom line of their appeal. Ecumenicism is a blending of diverse opinions so that doctrine does not divide us. This is the essence of what you find in books like The Purpose-Driven Church and The Purpose-Driven Life. Those are two books, two fad books, that swept Christianity a few years ago. And there's so much bad theology there that I don't have time to address that today, maybe some other time. But we do know what happened to the pastor that wrote those two books, and what happened to his church, there's a pastor that went into compromise and now participates in interfaith meetings with Muslims. And so it's gone beyond, can we, can we get along with other denominations that, that uh, may not believe exactly like we do? Can we get along with them? It's gone beyond that. Now we're talking about wholesale rejection of Jesus Christ can we work with people who do not believe that Jesus Christ is God can we work with people who do not believe that Christ is the Jehovah of the Holy Scriptures well let me take a few minutes to describe the issue I want you to turn to 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 14 this is a very familiar passage to most of you Uh, Baptists have often used this scripture to teach moral separation And often preachers will read into this text the things that they want to see. That's called eisegesis. When we interpret scripture as it's written and by what's intended, that's called exegesis. And if you're wondering, what should we do? Well, we should exegete the text, not eisegete the text. And exegesis uh, of 2 Corinthians 6 leads to legalistic, rule-based Christianity. And I'm not going to argue about that part today. But this text is actually more about theological compromise than it is moral compromise, although it does contain both, and both are a problem. And we're going to talk about both sides of that before we get done with Pergamos. Well, the Corinthian church that Paul wrote to was much like Pergamos in the temptation to compromise with idolatry. So Paul wrote to them... About this, beginning in verse number 14, he says, "...be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols?" For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God commands us to separate from those who worship idols. The Old Testament is filled with warnings against idolatry. That was one of the chief causes of Israel's ruin. Similarly, the New Testament warns that idolatry will destroy the truth of the gospel. Paul said, there can be no agreement with the temple of God and the temple of idols. Now that that teaching is very straightforward. There is no wiggle room in this. Idolatry is out for Christians. We're to have nothing to do with it. Now that separation means that we must divide from anyone who doesn't worship the one true living God of the Holy Bible. Now I want you to pay attention and make uh, make the distinctions with me of what we're going to talk about here. In this issue here, idolatry tells us to stay away from anyone who worships any other God. That's going to exclude us from any kind of an interfaith meeting. So we're not going to be able to get together with Muslims and Buddhists and all of these other groups. We can't do that. So the answer for the Persian Christians, according to these scriptures, concerning idolatry in their culture, is to not give an inch. Because there is no agreement, there is none, between God and the perversions of worship. You cannot agree that Caesar is Lord. You cannot agree with that claim and with God's claim. Now, I want you to hold on to this scripture for a minute and flip a few pages back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, and look at verse number 19. Now, hopefully, you know, as I do, idols are not real. Now, an idol, of course, is a real thing. It's something that somebody made, but it represents there's no power in it. It can't move, it can't think, it can't command, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't create or destroy. It's cold, stone, dead. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that the cold, dead idol has no power behind it, because Paul says it does. 1 Corinthians 10:19 and 20. What say I then? That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Sacrifices to idols are sacrifices to the devil. That's demonic. This is devil worship. Now, go back to 2 Corinthians 6 again, to verse number 15. And we see that Paul says this. And what concord, that means agreement, what concord, agreement, hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Now, let's be very clear, as Paul is clear, Belial refers to Satan. Anyone who worships with a person who does not worship the God of the Bible is engaged in Satan worship. So an interfaith meeting is devil worship. So what are we to do about the nice, friendly Buddhists? What are we to do about the sincere Hindus? Are, are they harmless? Not according to Paul. The worship of their gods is not equally valid with the worship of Jehovah. There are only two religions in the world. Either it's the doctrine of Jesus Christ or it is the doctrine of devils. There are no other choices. There's no, listen, there is no equality in religion. There's only one true religion. That's Christianity. And that's not bigotry, folks. That's the truth. And we're not interested in anything other than the truth. So on the authority of the Scriptures... Other religions are not equal with Christianity. Their gods are not gods. Now, Satan wants you to think they are. He likes nothing better than for you to put a bumper sticker on your card that says coexist as if all is equal. But the proof that all religions are not equal is that Satan is cast out of heaven and he has no place to sit but on a barren rock somewhere. But coexist. That's popular, isn't it? You see that everywhere. It's cultural, isn't it? That's the problem at Pergamus. Why can't Christians give into the culture and become a part of it? We can't because false religions are demonic. They're not just wrong, folks. They're worshiping devils. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Now, I can live with you. I can live with you if you believe something else. If you've got another opinion of this, I can live with you. I can go about my business. I can live peaceably with you, even if you disagree. Leave me alone, and I can live in peace. Leave me alone, I'll worship my God, and I can live in peace with you. The world disagrees with us, though. We, we, we pray that we can live in peace. We pray that we can serve the true God and leave others alone to do what they do. But you know something? Those who preach tolerance are not happy to live with us. They tolerate everything but Christianity. And so evangelical Christians are not welcome in this culture, and this is the reason that many cultures have... Christians, rather. It's the reason that many Christians have decided to rejoin the culture. Because we just can't coexist on these terms unless we compromise with them. So they decide to rejoin. Cultural acceptance is better to them, to them than God's acceptance. Acceptance of the culture is the end of hostility. Now, the position of Christ and the apostles is not to compromise with idolatry in any form. In Second Corinthians, this is very straightforward. It's blunt. It's very easy to understand. Christ cannot agree with idols. But now you need to set... Still, Sit still for a minute, anchor yourself in, because i got something else to tell you. This is even more insidious. Maybe we understand why we don't want to compromise with Islam. And maybe you understand why we don't have an interfaith meeting with Buddhists and with others. But what about those who say that they're Christians, but their gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ? I used the word ecumenical a moment ago. And what is the insidious problem with ecumenism? Well, a simple definition of ecumenism is Christian unity. That sounds great, doesn't it? Christian unity. Let's just get all Christians together. But here's what we have to do. We have to define who is and who is not Christian. And so we have to assess Paul's letter to the Corinthians to see... Who is it that caused all these problems in the church? It's not the idolatry of pagans that's the biggest problem to the Corinthians. His opposition to Paul and to that church is a group that's called Judaizers. These are insiders. Now what I'm trying to tell you is these are people that are inside the church, not on the outside. They were false Christians who said that faith in Christ alone is not good enough for salvation. The same is true of churches in Galatia. Paul said, that's a false gospel. That is not the gospel of grace. Now, how does that affect our interpretation of 2 Corinthians 6? Well, it means that we must also separate from those who say that they are the apostles of Christ, but they are not. And it means that true churches must disassociate with apostate churches. And this means that Berean Baptist Church must separate from churches in our area that do not preach the gospel and Paul's estimation these churches aren't any better than pagans they are also demonic now i know that's strong but anyone who believes that christian churches should christian churches should stick together despite doctrinal differences has surrendered to the doctrine of devils either our doctrine is of christ or it is of satan Both interpretations can't be right. But there are some who say, well, what we must do, we've got to join together to fight the common enemy. Join together to fight the common enemy. But a church with a false gospel is the enemy. Here's our real issue. They're the worst enemies, because these are the enemies that got behind the lines. These are the ones that say, I stand with you, I'm with you They're on the inside. There is no worse enemy than says, I'm a friendly, and then stabs you in the back to kill you. Hello, Abner. My name is Joab. You can look up that reference if you didn't understand it. So here is a plea in Scripture that we are to beware of false teachers and false doctrine. Now I want you to hold on here because most of you know enough about me to know I'm not going to speak in veiled references. My job is to warn you specifically. Our text in Revelation is specific. The enemy within is the Nicolaitans. That's named by Christ. These are your enemy, he says. Now, whoever they were, they were a problem in the church, and Christ named them. Paul had no problem naming enemies of the church. Philippians 3.18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. I've told you this before. Who they are, he says, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. In First Timothy, we get some names. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before thee, that thou by them mightest war, a good warfare, holding faith and good conscience, with some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Listen, of whom is, who are they? Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't say, there's these two guys, I'm not going to tell you who they are because I don't want to offend anybody. I'm not going to tell you who they are. You, you, you look and you try to guess, who are they? No, he said, there they are. That's Hymenaeus and Alexander. They're the ones you've got to watch out for. So don't get upset with me if I tell you here are the ones you've got to watch out for. So I don't feel very bad about naming names. You need to know who to look out for. So who will this church separate from? Well, I'll start at the top. We will separate from Catholicism and from the Pope. Catholicism tops the list of apostate Christianity. Most people are afraid to say so anymore. In the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers were not afraid to say so. They vilified the Pope. And I'll go even further than that. Most of the Reformers said that the Pope is the Antichrist, and they interpreted Revelation 17 as a direct reference to the Roman Catholic Church and its popes who were drunk with the blood of martyrs. Not many are strong enough to preach that way anymore. Ecumenism has caused many to embrace the pope. Top evangelical leaders love the pope, and some are even... Worse, because they believe an idea that was advocated by Billy Graham and by the late Robert Shuler, an idea that's called wider mercy. I don't know if you know what that means or not. But wider mercy means that it's possible for a person to be saved and to go to heaven without ever having heard of Jesus Christ and believe in Him. We will separate from that. Here's the bottom line of our view of Catholicism. We will evangelize them. We will not join them. Some years ago, we had an elderly couple that uh, attended church here. On one week, they would go to the Catholic Church right over here, a few blocks away. The next week, they would come here. Until one Sunday, I preached about the heresies of Roman Catholicism. Now, they no longer come here. And... uh, they learn very quickly that our doctrine has no affinity with the doctrine of Roman Catholicism. You've got to choose one or the other because both are not Christian. Now, there are others that are also very bad. Should we join Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons? Well, no, that goes without saying. They're not Christians in any way, shape, or form. Nobody that denies Jesus is the Christ who denies His testimony of being eternal Jehovah God. Nobody who denies Jesus Christ as fully man and fully God is a Christian. And that's not to say that we think that Roman Catholics are Christians. If, if a Roman Catholic believes salvation by grace through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, he's saved. And I'll say that about anybody. If this is what you believe, salvation is in Jesus Christ, and in Him alone, through faith alone, by the grace of God alone, then you are saved. I don't care what you call yourself. But I'll also tell you this, that if a Roman Catholic says that faith alone in Christ alone is the way that he's saved, he will be excommunicated from his church. Because the official Roman Catholic catechism says anybody who believes that a man is justified by faith alone is cursed. How do we disagree with Catholicism? We disagree on the gospel. And there is no greater disagreement than the gospel. Now let me go on. What what group is the fastest growing among Christian groups today? Well, the answer to that question is the worldwide leader spurred through a massive broadcasting system is the Word of Faith movement. This is the doctrine of Joel Osteen, of Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, T.B.N., Trinity Broadcasting Network, and others, better known as the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is satanic. It's the doctrine of devils. We will not accept the doctrines of Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism denies faith in Christ alone. It's a works-based religion that includes shenanigans like speaking in tongues and barking like dogs and holy laughter, slaying in the Spirit. It is a false gospel. We reject them as teachers of a false gospel. It is the doctrine of demons. I don't have any doubt that the gibberish and all they go through, the foolish antics are the activity of demons. Saved people can't be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and by demons. Well, oh, Pentecostalism and Charismania are doctrines of the devil, and the Brian Baptist Church will have none of that. We will not associate with it. We'll not associate with those who teach extreme forms of Arminianism and Pelagianism. You say, Well, who are they? Well, these would be people in the Church of Christ. They would be Nazarenes, other groups that claim they came out of a restoration movement of the nineteenth century. Nazarenes are not from that group, but they are extreme Arminians. And I could go on, but I think that you get the picture. So you might wonder, who does the Berean Baptist Church fellowship with? Who, who who do you associate with? With those who stick to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the doctrines that are known in the word of God as the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Anybody else we've got to separate from, they're unbelievers. Anybody who doesn't believe the true gospel of Christ is an unbeliever, and unbelief is the doctrine of devils. As I said earlier, maybe this should be a Sunday night sermon, but it doesn't really matter because I've learned that with the Internet, podcasting, nothing that I say is secret. So, frankly, I'm I'm really not afraid to say what I need to say. If I hid this from you on a Sunday morning... You'd soon find out, or you'd find out soon enough. We are exclusive in our beliefs. We are as exclusive as Christ and the apostles were exclusive. Well, inevitably, we open up ourselves to a charge. You believe that you are better than others. No, I said we believe the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not believe that we're better than others. We see the light because the Holy Spirit opened the hearts of dead sinners to see the light of Jesus Christ. And I know this charge will come. Pastor Smith, you believe that you're the only one who is right. No, I'm not the only one who is right. All true believers are right. And 2,000 years of church history has proved who is right, Jesus Christ. We are right only because Jesus Christ is right. So if you charge me with believing that what I think is right, I'll accept that charge. Because what fool believes something he thinks is wrong? So of course I believe that I'm right. If my soul hangs in the balance, I want to be right. Bereans are not better than others. This is the whole point. We believe the Bible. And it says the worst, the wickedest of sinners, the vile. As i said, the dead and trespasses and sin. These are the ones that Christ draws to him and changes their hearts and regenerates them to be like jesus christ will the culture take us will they accept us on any basis the answer to that question is yes they will accept us if we make the right compromises they'll begin to tolerate some of our nuances if we make the right compromises a little bit here a little bit there just so that we don't look too much too different and then all is well Now, we have another issue to deal with in the text, and I I don't have time to get to it today. I think it's an interesting part of the Scriptures. In verse 14, there's the mention of Balaam, and Balaam is one of the most notorious characters in the Scripture. There's nothing good said about Balaam. And he shows up whenever the Scriptures want to describe someone who is the worst compromiser. Balaam's our poster child for that. So we learn about Balaam and what he did. We're going to get into that. He got Israel into theological compromise through moral compromise. And I want to talk to you about how he did that. What, what method did he use? What happens to a church that follows the doctrine of Balaam? Pergamus did. And that's the source of the Spirit's rebuke. Now let me close the message today with just a word about Berean Baptist. Before I left the church services a few weeks ago, there was one of our members who, who I commented that something that I said stood out. I'm really happy that somebody's listening to what I say. And uh, she said, you, you said something that, that really stuck with me. And this woman said, uh, you said the seven churches were good and bad. And you said these seven churches represent churches in all ages. ages. And she said, it struck me that we're one of the good churches. And that's what we're going to find out in this study. Well, I surely hope that's what we find out in this study. Berean Baptist Church, by the grace of God, is one of the good guys. A lot of other people say we're the good guys too, but they're using a much different criteria than we do. This is the reason we don't compromise morally or theologically. We want to be one of seven churches that God says, you are what I intended my church to be. You are the martyrs. You are the faithful witnesses of my word you will not give in even though it makes you horribly unpopular with the culture and folks that's that to me is what it's all about Uh, i want to be popular with god and popular with angels and popular with just men made perfect in heaven and if i'm popular there i don't care what happens here doesn't matter what happens here and that's what i want for you To please God and glorify Him and Jesus Christ alone. And we'll do that only as we are true to the gospel of Christ. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for salvation. As we preach the word of God today, we know, Lord, that I don't stand here, neither does anyone sit here, because... We're better than a 1,000 or 10,000, 100,000 people that are on the outside of this church who never cared to even step a foot in the door to see what goes on here. We're not better than anybody that's out there. We only know what we know because in your mercy, your love, and your grace that you opened our eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we are is only because of you. By the grace of God, we are what we are. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. And we surely hope today, Lord, that nothing that's been said has been said in anger, nothing been said in hatred. We only tell the truth because we want people to see that, to have their eyes open and not to go the way that they are and continue that way. Because we know, just as Jesus said, there is a broad way that leads to destruction. There are many people that are on it. People are dying every day and going to hell, and they need to be warned to get off of that path. Get off the path of the doctrine of demons and get on the path of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the only way, the way, and the truth, and the life that takes us into the everlasting kingdom of God. Help us to preach the gospel of Christ and stand strong on it no matter what opposition we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California.